Let's open up now together to Romans chapter 5. No? Is it registering on the board? I'll just talk loud. We'll record on the board. I can't hold a microphone. It won't work. What's that? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. These microphones... Unreal. All right. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. If you can't, you're just going to look at me blankly and not answer anyway. So what am I? Doing? <laughs> well, we're, we're picking back up again in Romans chapter five. And, and again, Paul has, as we have been going through this glorious epistle, Paul has been um, in the early chapter showing us just exactly how serious the situation is, just exactly how desperate the case is for uh, men and women that we are uh, bound up in sin. Paul kind of paints this picture looking down over the edge into this abyss of filth and rebellion and God's wrath. And he pictures all people down at the bottom of this with no hope of escape, but without any desire to escape either. Just there, living lives, oblivious to their plight. And he pre presents for us this beautiful gospel, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And so now as we come to Romans chapter 5, we have been looking now the last couple of weeks at the benefits that come along with this justification. We're going to read again these first 11 verses that we've read the last two weeks. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because Christ's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this precious gift that you have given to us, that through your word we hear the voice of our God, that we can come to know you. That by your spirits working through your word, you call to life that which is dead. You call to freedom that which is bound and to sight blind eyes. Pray that your word would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the benefits of 
justification by faith alone. Again, justification is a legal term that Paul uses a lot in Romans. It means for a person to be made in right standing with God. How is it that these sinful, rebellious people who are bound up in sin, who are down at the the bottom of this abyss of, of rebellion and filth and wrath, how can this person stand before a holy God, not only without fear, but in full assurance that they'll be accepted by him? What Paul has shown us is, well, it's through no effort of our own. It's through no merit that comes from us. We've got no righteousness of our own that would commend us to God or make him accept us. There's only really one kind, Paul has shown us, of righteousness that God will accept anyway, and that is spotlessness. It is perfection. Not not even the slightest hint of sin, and no person could ever hope to achieve this righteousness. So we need someone to intervene on our behalf, and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for all who trust in him. Because of his sinless life in our place, fulfilling the law's demands perfectly. Because of his substitutionary death in our place, bearing the full wrath of God that that is righteous wrath. It is right wrath that we deserve for our sin. Because of his triumphant resurrection, conquering sin and death and hell, which is the, the Father's stamp of approval on the whole transaction, Because of that, we're not just forgiven of our sins, but even more than that, God clothes us in the spotless righteousness of his son. He credits to us Christ's own eternal righteous status. And then on top of all of that, he rewards us according to that. He doesn't reward us according to what we've earned and what we have done. He looks at the eternal perfection of his son and then says, and now I will reward you accordingly. He loves us in Christ. He embraces us. He fellowships with us. He he qualifies us to be with him. So that on that day when we stand before him in Christ, he doesn't look at us and go, oh, you miserable sinner. No, what does his word say that he'll say to us? Well done, good and faithful servant. He qualifies us to be in his presence forever. That's what it means to be justified by faith. We're credited Christ's perfection, legally declared righteous before God. And as we have been seeing the last two weeks, there are sure benefits that come along with that, as if that weren't enough. Wrapped up in that are these other things. We've looked at two of them over the last two weeks. The first is peace with God. Verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the language Paul is using, this, is, this has happened. It is ours right now. Again, in those early chapters of Romans, Paul has gone to great lengths to show us this was not always the case. We didn't have peace with God. We read it again this morning in verse 10. We were his enemies. We were at war with God, and worse yet, he was at war with us. He was not neutral towards us. But for those who have trusted savingly in Christ, that war is over. There's no conflict. There's no enmity. We are no longer his enemies. We are fully accepted, fully beloved children of God. That was the first benefit we saw. Second is access to God. As we go on in verse 2, through him, as Jesus, we have also obtained 
access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So those who have been justified by faith, given peace with God, are now presented before the throne of God in perfection, in righteousness, spotless. We stand in grace and and immediately we're brought into a relationship with God. We have access to the throne of grace 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can come over and over and over and over and over again. And he never gets any more tired of us, God the Father, than he does of his son, Jesus Christ. That's good news. Now we come to another benefit of justification, hope in God. This hope that we have in Christ changes everything. It should affect the way we see everything. It should affect the way we see our circumstances. We should interpret all of our lives through this lens that the gospel provides for us. So look at the second half of verse 2. And, in other words, in light of our justification by faith, in light of the assurance that it brings, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 5 he says, and hope does not put us to shame. This is an inclusio that Paul's using. It It means all of this is about hope. It starts with hope. It ends with hope. Everything in the middle is about this hope that the gospel brings. And in order to demonstrate to us the hope we ought to live with, the hope we ought to view everything in our lives through, Paul applies this benefit of hope in God to to the area of great need in our lives, to the place where we're actually tempted to despair, to the place where we're tempted to doubt God and his promises. This hope in God, Paul says, has something to say about our suffering. Look at verse 2 as he continues. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. This word rejoice, as we saw last week in the Greek, it's not just that we're happy about it and we feel good about it. It's it's to exalt. It's to boast in. It's to to glory in. Those who have been justified by faith, those who've been given peace with God, those who, who have access to standing before God in his grace, rejoice in God. Rejoice in the God who creates out of nothing, the God who sustains the whole universe, the God who raises the dead and rules over the nations, the God who cannot lie but keeps every one of his promises, the God who has promised to keep all whom he has saved. As we read in chapter 8, verse 30 of this same epistle, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's this knowledge, it's this certain knowledge that the justified will be glorified that causes us to rejoice in hope no matter what circumstances this world has to throw at us. And friends, we need this hope. We not only need this hope because of what the news tells us, we need this hope because of what false teachers have been telling the church in this country for generations. The false teachers of the prosperity gospel who say that if you just have enough faith in God, he'll make you rich. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you to prosper and rise. But the truth is, despite their lies, God has never promised wealth to us. God has never promised health to us. God has never promised that we'll be politically connected in this life. None of that is promised to us. Jesus did promise us this, though, John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have 
truck. They don't make a lot of signs to hang in your kitchen of that promise. <laughs> in this world, we all face troubles. We all face sufferings. We all face tribulations and pains and trials. And what is the Christian supposed to do in light of life's pain? What does Paul say here? Rejoice. It's the same word he used in verse 2 to say, this is our posture towards God. He says, this is our posture towards our sufferings as well. Glory in. Exalt in. Boast in. How could we possibly do that? You've all lived long enough to suffer. Even the kids have suffered. It might just be like getting your TV privileges taken away for the night. But you feel it. How can we do that? This, this word, sufferings or tribulations, by its very definition means this isn't life's small inconveniences. This is the major stuff. The, the word means to be pressed, to be put under great stress, under great pressure, the way olives are pressed to make olive oil. These are severe trials. These are deep sufferings. These are intense tribulation. And we're told not just to endure them, we're told to rejoice in them. Not to murmur and complain about them, but somehow press on. Not to fall into self-pity that gets others to pay attention to us so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. Not even to rejoice in spite of suffering. No, we're told to glory in our tribulations. In other words, because of them. How can we do that? How can we do that? Well, he tells us in the very next word, in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing. The, the Greek word here means not just I know right now, continuing to know. There's something we can know that will change everything. It, it even changes the way we understand our suffering. If, if we know, really know that God is at work, even in and through our greatest trials and sufferings that we face, then we can rejoice. Even though those sufferings, even though those troubles are bad in and of themselves, we don't welcome them. We're not excited about them in and of themselves. But we can rejoice, yes, even in them, knowing that God will bring good out of them if we really believe what he has told us in his word. In the same apostle, Paul writes this much-beloved statement that we all know so well, chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. We know. Even Jesus' words, I said this promise that none of us have hanging in our kitchen, that in this world we'll have trouble in John 16, has an essential context as well. John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so in the midst of even intense, fiery trials and sufferings, it is what we know that will cause us to have peace. Not just to have peace, but to rejoice. Again, don't miss 
misunderstand me. I don't naturally welcome suffering. Uh, I've said before, I have a bit of a hair trigger uh, depression switch somewhere in me that just goes off about things that really aren't important. Um, Christians aren't called to be masochists who love pain and are excited about it. I don't love pain. I don't welcome pain. But I do understand something. I do understand that my suffering is never meaningless. That your suffering is never meaningless, Christian. That that the Lord's going to use even this for your eternal good. We have that promise in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It's a long passage. Stick with me. You've And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we're going to have the hope that Scripture offers us, but it doesn't just offer us, it commands us to have this hope if we're in Christ, we must understand that through our tribulations, God is working for our good. Suffering is one of the means of our sanctification, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. For Christians, our tribulations initiate a process that results in our further being conformed to the image of Christ. God refines his people through tribulations like the silversmith who purifies silver by heating it in the crucible. Our loving Father purifies us through fiery trials to make us holy, to make us blameless, to make us fit for heaven. He has promised us that he's at work for our good in all things. Again, this promise is for God's people. He hasn't promised every person that he's at work for their good in every situation. He's promised this to those who are in Christ. We can count on it. It's a sure promise. The, the psalmist writes about afflictions and God's use of them in his life in Psalm 119. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Here's a man, if you were with us as we went through this entire psalm over the course of several months, A man facing great affliction, great tribulation, great trials, but he was a man who was looking to God. He was interpreting his afflictions in light of what he knew to be true about God. In light of what God had promised in his word. And that filled him with hope and it filled him with courage and it filled him with strength because he knew 
that God was at work for his good, even in and through those afflictions. Friends, we need to know this. So Paul says we ought to rejoice in our sufferings. He gives us four reasons to do so. Look at verse 3. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character or produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Gives us four reasons we ought to rejoice in our sufferings. Four, four, Four examples of what God is doing in the midst of our tribulations and our sufferings. First, suffering produces endurance. Our tendency as humans in the midst of trials and tribulations is to lose hope. It's to give up. Most people, when faced with real tribulation, cut bait and run. What the pressures of tribulation are for the Christian meant to produce endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. They're designed to develop our spiritual muscles so that we will continue to stand until the end. One of the things suffering does for us It destroys the human notion of self-confidence. It destroys human pride. I know many of you have been in these situations where you realize there's nothing I can do about this. There's nothing I can do to change this. I'm powerless. Suffering does that for us. It causes us to rely on God instead of ourselves. Causes us to rely on God instead of looking to other people to, to be our salvation and our solution. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life ourselves. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever felt that way? So afflicted. So burdened that you despaired of life itself. That you felt like you were under a death sentence. What does he say? That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Our God is at work for our good in our tribulations. And there, there are many, even some churches in this very community who say the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the most evil doctrine being taught in churches today. God would never send tribulation or suffering into someone's life. There's a local pastor from our community who wrote a lengthy post online about this two weeks ago. And many people from our community chiming in. Oh, I'm so glad that you said this. This is so right. It sounds so right to us. Oh, a loving God would never do this. He would never send tribulation. He would never send trouble. Trouble. He would not be the cause of that in our lives. And that sounds so good to us, and people seem to like what this pastor was saying. Here's the only problem with it. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches the opposite of that. That's not the God of the Bible. It is a hopeless theology with a puny, weak, impotent God. I want you to know I reject that. It is heresy. It is blasphemous. What does the Bible teach? God is totally, unrestrictedly sovereign over all that he has made. He does what he wants, when he wants, 
the way he wants, and he never, ever, ever has to ask anyone's permission to do it. And every single thing that he does is for the good of his people. Now, can our feeble human wisdom see it all the time? No. What's that teaching? This pastor posted two weeks ago, feeble human wisdom. Whether we can see it or not, God is working, Christian, in your life to grow you, to mature you. He even brings tribulation into our lives. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, which was great sin... What's the statement that gets made in Genesis chapter 50? He says to them, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The exact same words. You meant it. It was your intention. You planned this for evil. God meant it. It was his intention. He planned this for good. So the view that says God is not sovereign, that some things are just beyond his control, that they're too far for his arm to reach, It is not a biblical concept. It's a pagan concept. It is a heresy and a blasphemy. The Christian view is the one that the Bible teaches. It says all of our lives are lived under the administration of divine providence. And God is good and faithful. Even when our frail human understanding can't wrap our minds around where the goodness is. Where the faithfulness is. How God could be working for our good in this. God has good, eternal, sovereign purposes in all things. And that includes suffering. It doesn't mean that God is the author of evil, as some accuse him of being. It does mean God uses evil even in our lives. And as we saw in these verses I just read, he ordains it. Because he's good. Not because he's evil. Because he loves us. What's the most evil moment in the history of all creation? What's the greatest sin ever committed in the history of all creation? Because people love in their arguments, and this pastor did so as well. Well, what about this? What about this? Are you saying God causes these things? And they're just naming the most evil things they can think of. Brothers and sisters... They didn't name the greatest evil that ever happened. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest evil that ever happened. It's the greatest sin that ever happened. There is nothing more evil than that act of rebellion where where creatures used the muscles that had the strength that God provided them to crucify the Lord of glory. Where they used the air that he provided for them and the lungs that he made to curse him. Where they put to death the Savior. There's no greater sin than this. And in all the ways we think there might be, and we can come up with things to name that are worse, it shows we don't understand anything about the holiness of God. We don't understand anything about sin. But what do we see in Scripture regarding the greatest evil act ever perpetrated by human hands? 
God planned it. God was behind it. God ordained it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching to the crowd. He says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, those humans aren't excused. It's not as though just because God planned the death of his son that these men who, who murdered him have clean hands. No, Peter says, you killed him. You crucified him. God ordained it. Why would God foreordain such great evil? For his glory? For his people's good? Not, not one soul would go to heaven if it hadn't have been for that great evil. So if God could ordain, plan out the greatest sin that ever happened in the history of the world, and we have that in clear black and white in Scripture, brother, sister, don't you think he could work in the worst thing that ever happened to you for your good? So even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand, God is working in everything, even sufferings, even tribulations for his own eternal glory, for his people's eternal joy. And, and the first step in this is that he would cause us to endure, that he would cause us to persevere, that, that we remain steadfast in the faith. It's what we know to be true that will make us persevere. Otherwise, we just wouldn't get out of bed again. Second, endurance then produces character. The word here in verse 4, the Greek word literally is just proof. Endurance produces proof. New American Standard translates it's proven character. It, it, it's a word used of, of testing metals to determine their purity. Literally, the word means here in verse 4 to be tested and to pass the test. So suffering produces endurance, steadfastness, and steadfastness proves that what God has done in our lives was real. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Then he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the testing of our faith not, not only shapes us into the image of Christ, it, it proves the reality of his work in our lives. We really have been transformed. We really have been made alive, we who were dead in sin. We really have been made free, we who were bound and enslaved to sin. Chapter 8, verse 28, again, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 29. God's transforming us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's whittling us down, pruning away that which, which does not image Christ. He, he's melting us down and purifying us. And what is he using to do that? Tribulations. That's how we can rejoice. God's at work for my good. What does this testing produce in the Christian? Number three, character produces hope. So Paul's just come full circle. He starts with hope. He's going to end up with hope again. 
Why does suffering produce hope? Because that's the opposite of what we would think as humans. Suffering destroys hope. Suffering robs us of hope. Why does suffering produce hope in the Christian? Because it weans us off of the world, off of trusting in ourselves. It causes us to hope in God. It causes us to yearn for heaven. The the tribulations that you have suffered, the suffering that you have been through, do they not make you yearn for heaven all the more? In chapter 8, verse 16, Paul writes this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Friends, it's what Paul knew that made him say that. The sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits. Those who are being sanctified through sufferings and trials enjoy a greater hope for coming glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians grieve. I'm not talking about going through this world with some sort of happy, clappy, fake smile plastered on our face that never admits that we've gone through something difficult. We just don't grieve like those who are without hope. R.C. Sproul says, Paul is saying that if God is in control, then the most bitter human experiences we are called to endure, death, disease, the loss of loved ones, war, terror, all of these things that we dread in the depths of our being become not only tolerable, but we can actually glory in them because we know that God has promised to redeem every pain that we experience. That's the Christian hope. No wasted pain. No wasted suffering. No meaningless trial or tribulation. Everything in the life of Christian is full of meaning because God is at work for our good in it. And if he brought it into our lives, then he means to do a good work that we will be grateful for one billion years from now. And we're not promised that in this life we'll see the good results of this promise that we have. But we are promised that we'll see it. Fourth, and hope does not put us to shame. The, the, the hope of our coming glorification. Again, that's this knowledge that all of this is, is built on. Those whom he has justified, he will surely glorify. This hope will not put us to shame. In other words, God is going to follow through on his promises. We're not going to be left holding the bag. It's certain. Those whom he has justified, he will surely glorify. How how, how do we know this? How do we know this with such certainty? Well, read on in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This isn't speaking about our love for God. It's speaking about God's love for us. See what glorious thing Paul's telling us here. Just as previously, God was not neutral towards us. We were his enemies. 
He was at war with us, even as we were at war with him. So now in Christ, God is full of feeling towards us. But that feeling now is not one of enmity. It is his own overflowing love for his son that he now showers on us because we are in Christ. He has poured this love out into our hearts. That this love so fills us that it pours out of us in love for him. So why John writes in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. This love that by his spirit he has poured out into us overflows out of us in love for him. And not only does the father love us, the son loves us. Chapter 8, verse 35 of Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, of course, is no one. Verse 38, I'm sure that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 5 that this love of God that is, is poured out by the Holy Spirit has actually registered in our hearts. We know it. It has been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. This love from God functions as God's guarantee that we will be glorified, that his promises are true. This love empowers us to rejoice in trials, to endure to the end. It's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to pour this love into us. How does he do that? This is so amazing what God has done. He does it by coming to dwell in us. Christian, do you ever marvel at that? The third person of the almighty triune Godhead dwells in you. What an astounding thing. Lives in you is your guarantee of salvation. God didn't just airdrop a bunch of gifts and blessings onto your life. God himself has come to live in us, and he will never move out. God the Holy Spirit is in us, giving us all that we need. Well, friends, it would be impossible to live the Christian life apart from this. Apart from God the Spirit dwelling in us. And Paul notes... Look at his language here. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just as we saw these benefits have been given to us. So now the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You, you don't need a second work of grace. You don't need a special prayer to receive more of the Holy Spirit. When you were justified, the Holy Spirit of God was given to you. He dwells in you. Note also the Holy Spirit must be given to us. We, we don't earn this privilege of having the third person of the triune Godhead somehow indebted to us and have to come move in. The Holy Spirit was given to us. We were passive. God was active. If you're a believer, God has given to you his Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. He will never leave you. He is your guarantee that your eternity is secure, and it is this knowledge that gives us hope. If you're looking for hope in this world, and so many are, this world is one hopeless news story after another, isn't it? 
viruses, murder hornets, wildfires, Supreme Court nominations, presidential elections, one hopeless thing after another. If you're looking for hope, this is where it's found. No, nowhere else. Any other hope is fleeting. There's no lasting hope to be found anywhere else. This world is full of offers of false hope, but it is all a mirage. None of it lasts. But in Christ, the justification that is offered by faith alone, oh, in that there's solid hope. There's unshakable hope there. There's eternal hope there. Hope that can never be stolen from you. Hope that the world can never snatch away from you. Hope that doesn't depend on elections or governments or economies. Hope that isn't based on physical health or earthly relationships. Hope that endures hardships and tribulations, even rejoicing in suffering. Hope that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Hope that comes from God, the Holy Spirit, that dwells in us, who pours out God's love into our hearts and gives us assurance of full salvation. Friends, now more than ever, in these dark days, in these days of uncertainty, in these days that are filled with evil, we need to preach this gospel to ourselves every day. Over and over and over again. We need to remind ourselves of what the psalmist reminded himself in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. I love this refrain that goes through both of these psalms. Repeated, it's this. And friends, we need to, to repeat this to ourselves. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. That's where hope is found. And, and it's true hope. It's real hope. Uh, I pray that you'll trust him. I pray that you'll run to him. I pray that you will look to him. His promises are true. His faithfulness knows no end. His power to save is limitless. Here's hope. Here's life. Here's joy. Here's peace. Put your hope in God alone. You will not be put to shame. Let's stand up together. Almighty God, we place our hope in you. Lord, you are our only hope. You are our only refuge. You are our only surety in this life and eternity to come. Lord, your promises to us are so astounding, so amazing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived the great things that God has prepared for those who love him, and yet you have revealed them to us by your Spirit. No, we can't fully comprehend the glories of your mercy and of your grace, but Lord, let us be astounded again that you would be so kind. You, the Almighty God, who accomplishes all that he intends to accomplish, our God who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, that you would see fit to condescend to rebels like us to save us in Christ, to turn us into new creatures. 
with hearts that love you because your spirit has poured your love out into our hearts. Lord, let us live in light of these gospel truths. Let us be so in awe of these truths that we we can't help but see all of life through these things and in all the ways we take our eyes off of you. Lord, by that same spirit who dwells in us, would you bring conviction quickly to us that we would repent and again, lift our eyes to you. Lord, we want to live as those who have the hope that the gospel commands us to have. We want to live as those who see this life through the lens of reality and not the way the world spins it to us. And we want to live as those, Lord, who have peace that is unshakable and hope that is unshakable and the courage that comes from that, that we might be faithful ambassadors in this world. Pray that you would accomplish these things as only you can for your eternal glory, for the eternal joy of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.